Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of The Rad Trads on Wednesday, July 17th, 9 p.m. at the Doug Fur Lounge in Portland. The Brooklyn-based five-piece Rad Trads play nostalgic rock with soul and a horn section. They're touring around their On Tap record. Again, that's The Rad Trads on Wednesday, July 17th, 9 p.m. at the Doug Fur Lounge. 830 East Burnside Street in Portland. This is a 21 and over event. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Tune into KBOO Wednesday, July 24th from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. for the 21st Annual Homelessness Marathon. Broadcasting from a different city each year and airing on non-commercial radio stations coast to coast, this annual marathon features live reports, interviews with advocates and experts, and calls from listeners all over the country. This year's programming includes the voices of youth, students, and LGBTQ people, panels on fighting evictions, transitioning people back into housing, and ending homelessness now. That's the Homelessness Marathon, Wednesday, July 24th, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Good morning. You are listening to KBOO Portland, and it's the top of the hour at 9 o'clock. At 10 on Flashpoints, Dennis Bernstein discusses the xenophobic turn of U.S. immigration policy under the Trump administration. At 11 on stage and studio, D. May Roberts talks with author Nisi Shaw about their epic debut novel that centers on an imaginary utopia called Everfair. At 11.30 on Art Focus, Joseph Galavan interviews New York artist Nicola Lopez about her print show, Hybrids, at the Elizabeth Leach Gallery. Don't forget that you can hear all these programs after they air on KBOO.FM or on iTunes and Google Play. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by member support. If you'd like to become a member, go to KBOO.FM or use our mobile app and click on Donate. And now at 9, Alternative Radio looks at the evidence that everything from infant mortality, life-to-life expectancy can be linked to the level of economic inequality within a given population. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from Literary Arts, presenting author and journalist Tanahasi Coates in celebration of his new book, The Water Dancer. Monday, October 1st at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in conversation with author Renee Watson. Tickets and more information at literaryarts.org. And now, Alternative Radio. Inequality is a major factor behind our relative health decline and our absolute health decline. Studies beginning 40 years ago demonstrated that the income gap determines the health of a society. Higher the income gap, the more stress, dislocation, and frustration that we experience. So economic inequality kills. Pope Francis said this. It leads to more stress and dislocation in society with many health consequences. That's Stephen Bezrichka. And this is Alternative Radio, 
I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Stephen Bezruchka on Economic Inequality Kills. Given that people in the United States spend more money on health care than the rest of the world combined, then logic would dictate that we have the best health outcomes. Well, we don't. Why? Increasing evidence from epidemiologists, the scientists who study the health of populations, indicates that everything from life expectancy to infant mortality to obesity can be linked to the level of economic inequality within a given population. Almost a quarter of U.S. families live in poverty, the highest of all rich nations. Poor health and poverty go hand in hand. Checkups are deferred. Pain is endured. People engage in wishful thinking. For example, maybe that numbness in my foot will just go away. Single-payer universal health care would go a long way toward addressing our absurdly expensive health care system and reducing the number of unnecessary early deaths. To talk about these issues is Stephen Bezruchka. He's senior lecturer in the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington in Seattle. He worked for many years as an emergency physician in Seattle. He spoke in Grays Harbor, Washington, at an event organized by the Grays Harbor Institute. And now, Stephen Bezruchka. So you're probably here to think that uh, I'm going to tell you how not to die, or at least not to die too soon. And I'm going to disappoint you because I can't help you much there. But if you want to learn how to not have your children die too soon, or your grandchildren, then I hope you can consider some of what I'm going to talk about. One subject uh, rarely discussed in this country is how healthy we are. It's not taboo, but mostly we don't have the tools to understand human health as a population concept. And that's distinct from our health as individuals. I want to use this time to consider what has happened to the populations of we humans in the United States as far as our health is concerned. Here's an analogy. In the 1980s, it became clear that to experts that human activities on the planet were heating it up. Steps were considered then to maybe get global consensus and do something. It's difficult to ignore now that global warming is happening. Record heat waves, huge fires, many species of living things are having trouble, polar ices disappearing, and sea levels are rising. This is a population phenomenon. Some parts of the world are taking this very seriously. But polling people in the United States shows climate change ranks around 17th in terms of taking it seriously on their priorities. We also have the highest number of people among 66 countries that don't believe in climate change. So, and the federal government here is not only ignoring this, but is discrediting uh, the concept. So doing something about global warming requires cooperation on a global scale that has never been done before. Individual activities such as recycling, taking fewer airplane trips, using a bicycle rather than a car won't make much impact. Not only do nation states have to carry out activities to limit the use of fossil fuels and switch to renewables, 
But the transnational capitalist class, those who run the big corporations and have the most power in the world, have to change their activities. The problem is global, and the action at the individual level, although it makes us feel good, won't really impact global warming without major changes in the way human activity is structured around the globe. So we need a, a, a paradigm shift in requiring an action by the whole global population. I want to say that our health status as individuals in the richest, most powerful country in world history follows a similar pattern. I hope to get you thinking that what you do to be healthy, the usual eat right, exercise, use a condom, and see your doctor, is not enough. It's like tackling global warming by riding your bicycle more. What's required are changes at the national and global level. So as an emergency physician, I, in the ER, I worked to diagnose illness and injury in the individual. I was good at that. But the perspective I have here tonight is to consider not the individual person with the illness or injury, but a different patient, namely the country. Why is the United States so sick that we die younger than people in many, many other countries? We subconsciously take a country perspective often. We consider China, Mexico, North Korea, Russia, and policies regarding them. I want us to consider the health status of humans in various countries in the same way. What are policies that need to be in place in the United States regarding our health and well-being in the same way we consider policies about trade and security? What are the health policies required here? The equivalent of uh, global warming is happening to our health in the United States. Namely, it is getting worse. Just like climate change, it's difficult for a single person to perceive the problem. If there are severe winter storms in eastern United States, how could there be global warming? Similarly, if we have all these medical advances like robotic surgery and precision medicine, how could our health be declining? So ask, how is your health? Or as we commonly do on greeting somebody, how are you? No matter what's going on, we give the expected answer, fine, and how are you? But my friend David, when asked, says he answers better than you. Most of us are indirect, more indirect in considering and comparing ourselves to others, but we like to think we're above average. There's no single accurate measure of a person's health. There are many surrogate markers of your health, such as your weight, your blood pressure, how many steps you take a day, and then um, blood tests such as glucose or cholesterol levels. That's an individual person's health. For a population, say a, a state in this country or a county or the entire country, mortality rates measure how long we live. I, I said I worked as an emergency physician for 30 years, and the easiest diagnosis for me to make in the ER was that somebody was dead. It's not, it's difficult to fudge. So I really like mortality measures to indicate a society's health. To calculate average length of life for a population, all you need to know is everyone's birthday and their date of death. And you're always being asked your birthday as you navigate the medical care system, and your date of death will be recorded on a death certificate 
and then we can make tallies. That allows calculation of life expectancy, a measure that for a specific year is how long the average person would live if death rates stayed the same. For, in, for the United States in 2015, the number is 79.3 years. But since then, the number has been going down a tenth of a year every year since for the last three years. Such a health decline is actually unprecedented anywhere around the world this century. We're the only rich country whose health is declining. This is, I think, serious stuff, since most of us would rather live a longer life than a shorter one. And our declining health is not discussed much in the media. If you ask the question, uh, you can easily discover the answer here, and this is not fake news. So life expectancy has declined in the previous century only in a few specific times. For involved countries, the First and Second World Wars were periods of longevity decline for obvious reasons. There were huge mortalities increased, uh, increasing then. The other time was the influenza pandemic in 1918, which probably produced the greatest loss of life in history. There were two, others, uh, two other declines in length of life in the 1990s. One was life expectancy declined after the breakup of the Soviet Union, and it was especially large in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And this all happened after the fall of communism there. The other situation when it was in sub-Saharan Africa with high AIDS prevalence countries when length of life declined. So absent these tragic situations, average length of life keeps increasing. Now health keeps on improving, measured by mortality rates, except now in the United States. As I said, since the 1950s, mortality rates have been going down. That's been seen in most of the world. But the rates of improvement, the rates of decline in mortality have been different in different countries. So back in the 1950s, using the average uh, length of life measure, the United States could boast of having the longest life expectancy, the longest lives uh, of any country, certainly in the early 50s in the top five. Since then, many other countries have had their life expectancy increase faster than here in the United States, and it became especially pronounced after 1970. There are now 35 countries or more that have, where people live longer lives than we do. These include all the other rich countries, as well as some not so rich, as, such as Chile, Slovenia, Costa Rica, Cuba, and Lebanon. In those countries, people live longer lives than we do, plus all the other rich countries. So something's been going on in the United States that has got us not experiencing the health improvements of other nations. I said our life expectancy was 79.3 years, and now so many other countries have longer lives. Japan is the longest-lived country, some four and a half more life expectancy years than here in the United States. Most of us don't know how to interpret that difference, four and a half years. But if we eradicated our leading disease killer, cardiovascular disease, we'd gain about three and a half years in life expectancy and still not be the healthiest country.
So what I'm suggesting, if we had a miracle and eradicated our leading killer, we still wouldn't be the healthiest country. So something's wrong, and living in the United States may be bad for your health. It should be shameful that we die so much younger than people in so many other countries. I'm going to give you some more killer facts. Take adult mortality, the probability of a 15-year-old dying before reaching age 60. A girl in Sri Lanka or a boy in Tunisia have a better chance of reaching age 60 than an American boy or girl. As examples, just recall that Elvis, Steve Jobs, Michael Jackson, Janis Joplin, and Prince never reached age 60. The latest studies reveal that all of us, age 25 to 64, those of, those of you in the prime of life, are actually seeing death rates rise over the last few years. This is seen in all uh, race and ethnicities in this country and for all major causes of death. It's a bad sign that something is seriously wrong, and I'll talk about that soon. People often think that such ominous facts don't apply to them because they eat right, exercise, don't smoke, have white skin, and make lots of money. That's not true. We all die younger than our similar counterparts in at least other rich countries. I often talk about child mortality, dying before reaching age five. The same is true in comparisons with other countries show that if we take, for example, Slovenia as a country and ask, how does our child mortality compare with Slovenia? If we take a child in Slovenia and a child in the United States and look at the difference in death rates before reaching age five, if we had Slovenia's death rates, child mortality rates, 43 fewer children would die every day in this country. That's uh, pretty tragic. Another example are deaths of women in childbirth. Our rate of deaths of women in childbirth has gone up 50% over the last 15 years, something that's happened in only eight countries around the world. Before I present why our health is not doing so well, there's a couple of other important concepts. A key one is that racism impacts not only those who don't have white privilege, but all of us. African Americans have worse out health outcomes than whites. There's been progress in the black-white mortality gap has been declining, but there's still a significant gap. And states in the United States with a history of slavery have worse health, even for the whites there, than the states that didn't have the history of slavery. So racism is operating. The effects of racism are passed on from one generation to the next without being genetic, but epigenetic. That is, there are non-gene ways of affecting subsequent populations. So what is racism? I, I like to simplify things. Racism embodies difference plus power. What is power? Power is the ability to cause pain or pleasure in others at little cost to yourself. There's no biological definition of race. It's a social interpretation of how one looks. And society reinforces the systemic effects of racism. And racist attitudes begin in early life. And racism needs constant attention to overcome. If you search the web for the one-minute video titled Black Doll, White Doll, you'll see how black children in the United States 
say white dolls are nice and black dolls are bad. This has been studied since the 1930s and remains true today. So racism is institutionalized, personally mediated, and internalized as seen in the black doll, white doll video. I think the Black Lives Matter movement is a, an important forward step, but we still have a long way to go. So other societies appear to have less of an impact of race on health inequities. I mentioned Cuba, which is, which is healthier than we are. And although racism exists in Cuba, the uh, Afro-Cuban white mortality differences are the lowest I've found anywhere. That's racism. How about discrimination based on gender and sexual orientation? Your sexuality is who you go to bed with, and gender identity is who you go to bed as. My students these days are much more comfortable with these issues than even a decade ago. So speaking of LGBTQ issues is no longer forbidden. I'm talking about lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer. These people tend to have worse health than non-LGBTQ people, although there's no documentation of, on your death certificate of, uh, of, your, sec of your gender identity. However, uh, we do have same-sex marriage now legal in this country, which I think represents big progress. Another strong movement, Me Too, has blossomed against sexual exploitation of women. What has happened in the United States is the recognition of power differences between men and women. Recall the definition of power, the ability to cause pain or pleasure in others at little cost to yourself. The exploiters tend to be those with considerable power, and now some, but only some, uh, who sexually exploit women are being held accountable. Others, including our president, continue to exploit women at no cost to themselves yet. So many of you think that bad habits such as smoking cigarettes and eating too much is the reason for our declining health. I can dismiss smoking as a cause by pointing to the longest lived country, the healthiest country, Japan. Japan has more than twice as many men smoking per capita as in the United States. In fact, our smoking rates are pretty well the lowest among all rich countries. And these other countries have better lives than we do. Diet's also not the reason either. I'm not saying that diet and smoking aren't important factors for producing health. They're just not as critical as we think. Is it our health care system? We use the term health and health care synonymously. We speak of accessing health, paying for health, getting health, ensuring health, and so on. We do nothing of the kind. It is health care we pay for, access, or insure. So health and health care are vastly different concepts. As a doctor, I was, as I said, trained to diagnose illness and injury, and that's necessary in society. But the lack of health care is not the cause of the illness or injury. To help us see this, we spend more on health care than the rest of the world combined. In 2016, it represented a sixth of our economy and about $3.3 trillion. And this huge expenditure is not making us healthy. Another concept, 
as we go from the erection to the resurrection, the first few years of our lives is when roughly half of our health as adults is determined. Early life lasts a lifetime. We now see the first thousand days after conception is the critical period uh, that produces good health in, adult, in adulthood. Healthier countries privilege early life. As a society, we do not. Raising children might be the most important work we do as adults. To raise healthy children, you need two things, money and time. Children who grow up in poverty, who are in poor families in early life, are forever compromised by that experience. There's no drug or surgical procedure that can do away with harms that were done then. To have time to parent, you need time off work. Only two countries in the world do not give a working woman, after she has a baby, paid time off. The United States, of course, is one, and Papua New Guinea is the other, half of a big island north of Australia. There are some efforts now in, U in some U.S. states to have paid parental leave, uh, and in Washington state, uh, legislation was passed in 2007 to take 17 to take effect in 2020, paid for by a shared employer employee uh, payroll tax. While that 12-week paid leave period that people are going to get in 2020 seems generous, it is lower than that available in most countries around the world. In Canada, uh, a family gets a year's leave, paid leave at 60% pay, and it's more generous in quite a few other nations. There's another factor about early life besides having time and money to raise children. That is the abuse of children. Studies characterize abuse of children and the effects on the adults they become. Abuse is characterized as physical, contact, sexual, and emotional. Such events are termed adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Some of you may have heard about them, but like our declining uh, health status, the topic is mostly taboo. Trauma is another term uh, used instead of the more accurate child abuse. Researchers at Kaiser Permanente, the healthcare organization in San Diego, scored the number of ACEs uh, people there had and followed what happened to them over ensuing years. The higher the ACE score, the more likely you were to adopt risky behaviors, uh, such as to be, use illicit drugs, become pregnant as a teenager, uh, have cognitive and emotional issues, become obese as an adult, and have more diseases and a shorter life. A high ACE score was almost a death sentence. Now these were all mostly middle-class people, but as we've looked uh, uh, further, we find that child abuse is more common in poorer areas. Studies have also shown that being in a dysfunctional household uh, where somebody is incarcerated, there's uh, drug use or divorce, or the mother treated violently, as well as having the presence of me mental illness also contributed to adverse childhood experiences. A UNICEF study shows that we have one of the highest rates of child abuse deaths in all rich countries. ACEs are like poverty in early life. Uh, there's no remedy later 
to take care of the issues. So I said you need money to raise children. It's difficult to do on a minimum wage or if you're unemployed. So how much poverty is there in the United States? Well, we have more poverty and more child poverty than all the other rich countries. At the same time, we have huge amounts of wealth. The richest three Americans, indeed the richest three in the world, have more wealth combined than the bottom half, the bottom 160 million people in the United States. The world's richest person, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, have actually more wealth, he has more wealth than the next two, uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett combined. And guess what, the richest two live in our state. Such concentrations of wealth and the power that gives those three haven't been seen on our, on our planet except perhaps in the Gilded Age in the 1920s, which led to the huge economic crash and the Great Depression. So our society has shifted from the period when we were one of the healthiest nations in the 1950s, where in a typical family, one parent worked outside the home and the other in the home. If you compare the budget of that family with the median or middle family in 2000 with both parents working outside the home, the 1950s family had more discretionary income. That is, after paying for housing, food, uh, education, health care, they could afford a vacation or some frivolous, uh, some frivolity that the 2000 family couldn't. That is, wages haven't increased in inflation-adjusted dollars since about 1970. We're working more productively, but we aren't making more money. So inequality has increased tremendously since the period when we were one of the healthiest nations. And inequality is a major factor behind our relative health decline and our absolute health decline. Studies beginning 40 years ago demonstrated that the income gap determines the health of a society. Higher the income gap, the more stress, dislocation, and frustration that we experience. Something else also happens with increasing inequality. The very rich pay for service, such as security in their gated communities, uh, the best private education money can buy, and concierge health care. Since they pay for this themselves, they argue they shouldn't be taxed to pay for others having a public education or other services such as medical care. And they use their political power, which they have a lot of, to get tax cuts. And this affects the rest of us profoundly. So the quality of public services declines and we all suffer. And I think we can see that today. The one and a half trillion dollar tax cut is a perfect example. The rich get the cuts, and yet we don't protest those losses that impact us greatly. Inequality affects us in other ways. There are more mass shootings in U.S. counties with higher income gaps. And that's another way people respond to the dislocation and frustration we feel. So economic inequality kills. Pope Francis said this. It leads to more stress and dislocation in society with many health consequences. Nobel Prize winning economists such as Joseph Stiglitz and Paul Krugman agree with these ideas. But since we have so much inequality in society, it must be good for something. What's it good for? Well, the usual answer is it's good for economic growth. 
if we are see ourselves lower in the hierarchy, we'll work harder, produce more, which will be better for all of us. We'll make more money and our children will be better off. This is the American dream, but it's a nightmare in this country. It's a dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Yes, there are occasional examples of rags to riches transformations, but it only happens to a very select few today and not for the many, as was the case in the 1950s when we were one of the healthiest countries. Some say that the American dream is rooted in the Declaration of Independence, which proclaimed that all men were created equal with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It didn't specify a long life, and the length of our lives, as I said, is declining. Liberty is an illusion since we house a quarter of the world's prisoners. And while we're pursuing happiness, our happiness, too, is declining. Surveys of happiness in the United States verified that we're less happy than we used to be, and women are taking the brunt of the decline. Telling someone, as you do now, to have a nice day isn't working. The International Monetary Fund says that inequality is actually bad for economic growth. So since inequality kills, there isn't really any good reason to vastly increase it as we're doing now. You're listening to Stephen Bezruchka on Economic Inequality Kills. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Stress is the 21st century tobacco. I've said inequality increases the stress in our society, and most of us can relate to how our lives are busier, more stressful, perhaps less satisfying than they used to be. And the stress has profound psychological impacts on us and the society in which we live. And these stresses are producing dislocation in society. We are becoming distracted from personal relationships that promote health. People without friends don't live as long as those with friends and family. I'm not speaking about friends on Facebook, but those requiring face-to-face encounters. Our technology, all the gadgets and conveniences we now enjoy, stand in the way of being together. Despite being such a social species, we are alone together. We need vitamin F, or F stands for friends and family. So how do we cope with being so dislocated? Well, young people in public are hunched over their smartphones, oblivious of the world. I've seen people bicycling with no hands as the fingers tap on their phones. The internet is a huge distraction that produces profound dislocation. Consider we're the only primate species with whites in our eyes. Go to the zoo and check this out. Eye contact and facial expression is incredibly important for human interaction. Are you looking at me? Are you not paying attention? Are you angry with me, or do I sense affection? The eyes that, and facial expressions we make foster human relationships. Instead, we forego face-to-face friendships to make more money, to buy stuff we don't need, so we can delude ourselves that we're better than you. 
So I've been teaching at the university level spanning 50 years, and students are now much more stressed and anxious. Inequality has made them more competitive, more individualistic, and less social. This is happening at the societal level as we try to enhance our image with plastic surgery. If you can't afford plastic surgery, a photo enhancement app might do the job. Addiction is now increasing throughout the world. Bruce Alexander considers addiction as, quote, an overwhelming involvement in any pursuit whatsoever that is harmful to the addicted person, to society, or to both, end of quote. Let's look at one addiction, opioid use. Opioids or opiates, uh, what used to be called narcotics, refer to products of the opium poppy, a plant that's been cultivated for thousands of years. Opium products were actually available widely in the United States in the 1800s and were effective for many purposes, including controlling pain, coughing, and diarrhea. An ad for heroin here in the, in the 1800s marketed it as a sedative for cough. The U.S. undertook a campaign to ban the use of heroin around the world a hundred years ago. That led to the war on drugs and a law here, the Harrison Narcotics Act, that regulated production and distribution of opiates and coca products. The war didn't start in the 1970s. We've been demonizing opioids for a century. Deaths from opioid use began to rise in the 1980s from perhaps 7,000 a year to now more than 10 times that. More Americans die of drug overdoses yearly than were killed in our invasion of Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. It's become a serious epidemic with considerably more deaths than at the heights of the AIDS epidemic in the early 1990s. When one looks at maps of where the deaths are occurring, West Virginia actually has the highest rate, 10 times that of states like Nebraska. And some parts of West Virginia have the highest overall mortality rates in this country. The media are presenting this information uh, and the responses in various forms of harm reduction. What's not considered is why are people using opioids so much? And why is opioid use much higher in the United States than in any other country? Well, uh, the use of opioids here results from the stress and dislocation in this country. The country with the second largest use of opioids is Russia. And this has to do with the stress of the dissolution of the Soviet Union almost 30 years ago. And I talked about the health decline there. So why are we leading the world in opioid use and the consequences of so many deaths? Is it because we're an industrial society with many injuries and resulting pain? No, we're a post-industrial nation with most of us working in service industries that aren't dangerous jobs. Many of us only do mouse work and we move this rodent on a desk. As a doctor working in emergency departments, I found morphine a very valuable drug for treating pain during a heart attack or a car crash. Occasionally, I would write a prescription for a few opioid pills after the patient left. But in the 1990s, Purdue Pharma and other drug companies began a marketing campaign saying the opioid drugs were safe for wider use. They said, never let pain go untreated. 
strategy was very effective and led to vast numbers of opioids being prescribed. Today, large numbers of people take these opioids and doctors continue to prescribe them when the pain that they are treating is mostly psychosocial that results from psychic stress and dislocation and the lack of power. This can be seen as a direct result of our free market or capitalist society in which a small number profit from the work of the rest of us. We are facing an epidemic of disempowerment. When opioids can't be obtained by prescription, they can be bought on the street or Uberized to your home by those who are paid a fee, uh, a fixed price to deliver. And fentanyl, an incredibly potent opioid that is cheap to produce, has also been added to your pain cocktail, and it can quickly lead to fatal overdose. Fentanyl is so toxic that even a small package that would fit into a car trunk can kill more people than a small nuclear bomb. The societal response in this country to trying to cope with so much stress and anxiety has been to consider putting antagonists to reverse opioid effects in public places, just as we've done with uh, automatic emergency defibrillators for cardiac arrest. But the predicament we're suffering today is something that has been termed, that uh, I can't say in public, but uh, I can translate as feces life syndrome. That is, you can't say the S word in public, so substitute feces uh, but you know what I mean. You can also call it rotten life syndrome. So many of us see our living lives that are not very satisfying. Neither our work nor our dislocated social situation or our lack of trust in government is producing happiness. The results of the federal election in 2016 typify realizing that something is wrong and we need to turn in another direction. The recent increases in death rates among all adults in the United States is because we suffer from this rotten life syndrome, the new disease that is killing us. So we need to do something about the root cause of opioid use as well as other aspects of uh, fecal life syndrome. The Department of Health in Hawaii, the nation's healthiest state, produced a report on the social determinants of health in which they presented a graphic so their citizens could understand what made a society healthy. There was a mountain ridge in the background and a waterfall flowing down from near the crest and the resulting river meandered into the ocean. The mukai, meaning oceanside, or downstream effects at the ocean were the usual diseases we all suffer from, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, and such. Where the river meanders were access to health care and risk factors such as smoking and physical inactivity. At the steep waterfall were many factors in larger type that are much more powerful. Income, wealth, education, uh, employment, discrimination, racism, poverty, community, and environmental pollution. Above that was a phrase, social economic conditions. And then above that, in still larger type, was political context and governance. On the ridge was the phrase Mauka, meaning mountainside and upstream root causes. One of the root causes of our rotten life syndrome, the opioid epidemic, as I've tried to get you to see, is a downstream issue. 
we need to address political context and governance. The political impact on health has been known since the ancient Greeks. It was revisited by the founder of modern pathology, Rudolf Virchow, in 1848, when he wrote, medicine is a social science and politics nothing else but medicine on a grand scale. Our political system, whether you call it capitalism, free market economics, or neoliberalism, has produced a society that we can really only tolerate in relatively dysfunctional ways. We hurry, worry, and eat too much. Our addictions, in whatever form, control us and stimulate the economy. Well, I've taken you to the brink of despair. <laughs> the medicine we need on a grand scale is to transform capitalism or the free market into something that serves the people. We need to decrease stress in society. We need to find better ways of coping and decrease the numbers of people suffering from rotten life syndrome. There are many strategies. One change needed is to reform our healthcare system in the US so it's universal and acceptable to everyone. It should be focused on primary care, basic services, and not the super specialized form that exists here. A strong primary care system can buffer some of the bad effects of economic inequality. We spend twice as much per person on medical care as other countries, and much of that goes into various forms of profit, especially to the healthcare insurance companies. We need to take profits out of the system. That's not enough. We need to reduce inequality. And another uh, thing to do is to give us more power to run our lives. How can we decrease inequality and have more power? Well, in the courses, I, to consider economic inequality, in the courses I teach at the University of Washington, students have to take the ideas presented in the class, organize and plan a community event, outreach event, and then they have to present those ideas to others. So I get students to practice telling others. I ask them to write down a few speaking points. And then around dinner, uh, there'll often be a marketing call they receive, and, it, and they say they're, it's being recorded for quality assurance purposes. So I tell them to present your ideas, and the person on the other end of the line won't hang up. Try it. You'll learn ways of speaking about our health as a nation. Let's have a maximum wage in the United States. This was proposed by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1942. He wanted an income cap of $25,000 a year with 100% tax on incomes greater than that. There was great popular support for that. That $25,000 in 1942 is about $500,000 today, and that's enough for most of us. That tax rate didn't pass, but a 94% tax passed, and that was eventually increased to 96% in 1946. People today don't want to pay taxes, so they support tax cuts for the rich, even though it would be devastating to them. We need a maximum wage in the United States. Another thing would be to consider a pay ratio tax. The Dodd-Frank legislation passed in 2010 after the banking crisis, requires corporations to disclose how much they pay their CEOs compared to the median or middle worker in the corporation. They're supposed to do that this year, 
In the 1950s, corporate executives made about 10 times the median worker's salary. Today, it's closer to 500 times. So let's compromise on a 100 to 1 ratio. Tax corporations, if they pay more than that, or give government contracts to those that pay less than 100 to 1. Portland, Oregon has actually passed such legislation to use the proceeds to spend on housing for the homeless. Rhode Island has a similar policy. The Economic Opportunity Institute, a Washington state organization that helped get the Paid Family Leave Act passed, I hope will take this on, so support them. What about the other idea, giving us more power to run our lives? Recall, power is the ability to cause pain or pleasure in others at little cost to yourselves. Most of us are powerless and are wage slaves. We do our jobs, collect our salary, and don't grumble much. What power do workers in other countries have? Take Germany as an example. In all companies with more than 2,000 employees, half of the members of the board of directors have to be employee representatives. For companies between 500 and 2,000 employees, one-third of the board of directors have to be employees. So we could pass such legislation here, and this would give workers to some power to have control over their workplace. Let's have more employee-owned corporations. The Mondegrun Cooperative in Spain is a prime example, has very low pay differences among its employees. So employee buyouts would be a first step towards an economic democracy, and we could enable that by legislation providing bank loans, hopefully from a state bank, which now only North Dakota has. So support employee-owned businesses and present this as an option to your coworkers and friends. We need to uh, recognize political economy instead of separating politics and economics. We have some control over the political process in our democracy. We can organize and vote. But we do not have an economic democracy. Workers have no power in this country. So we need to democratize the economy. We can't separate politics and economics. And I think there are many more opportunities today than even a few years ago. Socialism is no longer a four-letter word. Candidates for office call them socialists and gain popularity. And there are remarkable ideological shifts among the public in the United States. So we can lead to broadening the distribution of income and wealth this way. So to summarize, something profound has been happening to our health in this country. We're facing an unprecedented health decline for all groups of people in this country. We use the most opioids of all countries, and there's a reason for deaths there that don't represent a fault of character. Opioids are there for the disadvantaged to take the edge off their fecal life syndrome. Their use has been there for thousands of years, but only in the last century has use been criminalized. That's led to more drug use. What would happen if illicit drugs were decriminalized? Would consumption go up or down? Well, Portugal in 2001 had a big drug problem, and they decided to decriminalize use of drugs. And deaths from overdoses there declined by more than 85%, and they have the lowest rates of death from 
drug use among all Western Europe. HIV infections associated with drug use plummeted there too. They have about 1 50th the uh, rate of drug overdose deaths than we do. They find it cheaper in Portugal to uh, treat people rather than put them in jail as we do here. So Portugal has used a public health model rather than a criminal model very successfully. They've seen a significant reduction in the social cost of drugs there. What's not to like? Well, they still go after drug dealers, just not drug users. And Portugal is considerably healthier and having longer lives than we do. It all fits together. So what needs to be done? The Institute of Medicine, a national think tank, part of our National Academy of Sciences, produced a report in 2013 accurately titled U.S. Health in International Perspective, Shorter Lives, Poorer Health, that documented much of what I've presented here in greater detail. You can also download it on the web. What did they say needed to be done? Number one, tell the people. Number two, look at healthier countries to see what they're doing that could be of use here. As most of you didn't know what I have talked about tonight, this hasn't happened. Why? Well, one reason relates to American exceptionalism. Namely, we're the world's moral authority and we tell, and other countries have to learn from us. However, I think we have much to learn from others. And our current political situation in the other Washington isn't conducive to learning about health status. So tonight I've merged our health, early life, climate change, racism, discrimination, power, and economic inequality, which are all interconnected in the political realm. So what are you going to do? Well, much depends on your perspective about the world. I think of the country as the patient or the population that needs work. We can take some pride in helping Japan become the healthiest nation on the planet. We occupied Japan after the Second World War, and the world's greatest population health doctor, disguised as an Army five-star general, Douglas MacArthur, gave J Japan the medicine it needed to become the longest-lived nation something it achieved by the end of the 1970s. Well, what was the medicine? It had three ingredients. One was demilitarization. Japan's constitution, which uh, we drafted, had Article 9 saying Japan will never go to war and was forbidden to have an army. Costa Rica doesn't have an army, and it's healthier than we are. So our huge military is really bad for our health. The second ingredient in the medicine was democratization. That is, everybody got the vote, and a public health clause was written into the Japan's constitution, Article 23, saying that uh, the government had to provide for the health of the public. The third ingredient was decentralization. There was huge concentration of wealth and power that fear-mongered the Japanese people into going to war. Thirteen big family corporations, or Zaibatsu, controlled the economy. MacArthur dismantled them. There were 37,000 landlords, or Kosakumen, who owned the land that millions farmed. 
MacArthur bought the land from them and sold it to the tenants and gave them a 30-year uh, low-interest loan. And historians call this the most successful land reform program in history, as over 95% of the land changed hands and most of the loans were repaid in a year. This is tested medicine and it works. We could either dose ourselves with the same medicine, namely scale down our military, enshrine our health in the Constitution, and decrease inequality. We need strong medicine. We need to act locally and nationally. Yes, create awareness here in your community, then expand it to the country. To make America healthy again will actually require global changes for the better. If we decrease economic inequality, as it must, it will have ripple effects around the globe. Clearly a win-win situation, even for the rich. I began by pointing out that our health is not as good as it should be and is getting worse. Two major reasons are the lack of attention to early life and the incredible inequality that stresses us out and creates a dislocated society. The actions required are political. We have to promote these concepts in whatever way we can. We have our skills and communication channels in which to do this. A Ming emperor said, to know and not to act is not to know. I told you what, what I said. Now, what to do about it? Well, P.T. Barnum, the, you know, the showman politician and founder of the Barnum and Bailey Circus said, without promotion, something terrible happens. Nothing. Without promotion, something terrible happens. Nothing. We have to work together to promote these ideas. A Confucian truth in a Chinese society says it's easier to break a single chopstick, but a bundle of chopsticks is almost impossible for a single person to break. So solidarity among people is a very powerful weapon. So let's join together to promote our health and make America healthy again. Thank you. That was Stephen Bezruchka, Economic Inequality Kills. He spoke in Grays Harbor, Washington. Stephen Bezruchka is a senior lecturer in the Department of Global Health at the University of Washington in Seattle. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, from Chris Hedges to Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, from Benjamin Hett to Francis Fox Piven. We also have a number of Stephen Bezruchka programs. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Stephen Bezruchka on Economic Inequality Kills, call us at one 800 444 1977. Again, that number is 1 800 444 1977. 
or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is also available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Board meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The KBU Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month, starting at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Sun Ra Orchestra live Monday, July 15th and Tuesday, July 16th at 8.30 p.m. at the Hollywood Theater in Portland. Just back from their European tour celebrating band director Marshall Allen's 95th birthday, the 15-member Sun Ra Orchestra will play two shows of experimental cosmic jazz and improvisational music. Again, that's the Sun Ra Orchestra, Monday, July 15th, and Tuesday, July 16th, at 8.30 p.m. at the Hollywood Theater, 4122 Northeast Sandy Boulevard in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Good morning. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Coming up at 11 on stage and studio, Dime Roberts talks with author Nisi Shaw about their epic debut novel that centers on an imaginary utopia called Everfair. And at 11.30 on Art Focus, Joseph Gallivan interviews New York 